So he ended in verse 37 of Acts 2. And to catch you up, Jesus, death, burial, resurrection appears to his disciples, tells them, wait. They go to Jerusalem, they wait for probably a week in an upper room praying. The Holy Spirit comes in fire and wind. We spent a lot of time on those metaphors. Fills them, empowers them, sends them out. They speak in tongues. A massive crowd comes. Peter doesn't speak in tongues anymore, he preaches. Preaches a profound scripture-drenched message. And he's done with it in verse 36. Verse 37 says, now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This crowd that has gathered, obviously pretty big, hears the message of Peter and it says they were cut to the heart and they responded by saying, what should we do about this? And so what they heard was essentially Peter lays out Hey, here's what's happened. Our biggest enemy, death, has been defeated. Heaven has invaded earth. You can live under the real king instead of the tyrant that's been ruling earth. You can live underneath this king now. And so when they hear this message and it resonates in their heart, they say, what should we do? How do we respond to this really good news? Do we need to climb Mount Everest? Do we need to fast for 40 days? Do we need to lay in a swamp naked and let mosquitoes bite our bodies? How do we respond to this great message? All those things have been tried. And the answer Peter gives is so simple, repent. Repent just means change your mind. Whatever you were thinking Jesus was or whatever you have thought God is, change your mind about that. God's not an ogre. God's not against you. He's actually for you and he's given everything for you. And be baptized. Be baptized. Do you know in the book of Acts, there's never once a baptism class. I'm not anti-baptism classes. I'm just not pro-baptism classes because they're not in the Bible. If you want a baptism, great, take a class. I just don't think they're required. What you see over and over, and we'll see this happen over and over, is people that respond to the gospel are immediately baptized. It's just the way it happens. And so when I baptize people, I tell them, this just means two things to you. Number one, it's this. 
It's putting on the jersey. It's you're now identifying as Team Jesus. See, I think that there are real principalities and powers. And they look and they see people in church, but they know just because you're in church doesn't mean you're saved. But the moment you get baptized, they go, aha, Team Jesus. And you can expect, if you get baptized, and I always tell people this, an attack from the enemy. The reason why I say that is because in Matthew chapter three, Jesus gets baptized. and Matthew chapter four, what happens to him? He gets attacked by Satan. Satan now identifies, aha, that's him. Right? He didn't know before. When Herod tried to wipe out Jesus, what did he have to do? He had to go kill all the babies because he didn't know who the Messiah was. But now all of a sudden, identified and he attacks. Well, Matt, why would I wanna do that? I'll stay in the secret service then. I don't wanna be attacked by the enemy. Because the second thing is this. Acts, not Acts, Romans chapter six says this. That something in baptism tells you, amplifies, makes real the fact that the old you died. Everyone has a birthday. When you get baptized, you have a death day. And so I tell people this, today the old you dies in these waters. And then I plunge them in and I hold them there a little while. I say, here's what this means. It means this, that the tendencies that we all have that frustrate us and we're like, man, I wish I didn't do that. I wish I didn't live that way. Why do I keep doing that? Ugh, all those things, today they die. And you can let them die. You can just let them be washed away. And then when the enemy comes and tempts you to get back into those cycles, whatever they might be, you just say, oh, no way. That Matt Heverly died May 22nd, 1993. I don't do those things anymore. I live for Jesus now. I put on his jersey. I'm on his team. I play for him. And there is such power in that. I found power in that since 1993. Like, no, that's not who I am anymore. He died. I'm not resurrecting. I'm not giving him CPR. I'm letting him die. And I'm living for Jesus now. And it happens instantaneous. Believe be baptized. I love that. And then what they're given, forgiveness of sins and the power of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for us and for your kids. It means this, that the same promise that was to them in AD 32 is the promise that you and I get today, that we get the same spirit and the same power. We get it. And 3,000 people respond. This is why we do Easter the way we do Easter. It's right here. We say repent and be baptized. And we count. You know why we count people? Because people count. Luke has no problem counting people. Over and over, he'll give numbers. 3,000, 5,000, right? He has no problem. with. Somehow we've got to this place now we're like, we don't really wanna count people. Why not? People count. I count my children. One, two, three, four, five. I got y'all, let's go, right? Because they're my family and they matter. Counting's okay. Hey, we wanna count. We wanna make sure you're taken care of. We wanna walk with you. We want to know you. I love that. So Peter here, he preaches, just kind of shuts up, and then the people, they respond. I think that's really important. The very first message in the Bible, 
about the church and about Jesus, Peter just presents the good news and then the people respond to it. What should we do? I think too often we make salvation our job. I gotta save this person. It's up to me. I gotta get out there. I gotta hammer it. I gotta really show them. I gotta save them. And then we make it super complicated. So I shared two weeks ago that when I lived in Mexico, part of our discipleship was to go out on the streets of Ensenada and share the gospel. But I didn't know Spanish, so it was very awkward. It was awkward evangelism 101, right? I would speak English, they would speak Spanish, and then I'd say, adios, right? One time it was different. I met this guy, he was a biologist, worked at a big lab down there, and he spoke perfect English. And I'm like, yeah, I'm an engineer, you're a biologist, let's go. So I'm like, I was all tooled up. I'm like, okay, great, you don't believe in God, you're an atheist, all right. So tell me this, I said, if you're an atheist, how do stars form? He's like, I don't know, man. Okay, I'll tell you. I said, well, you know, they say this, after the Big Bang, there's all these massive gaseous clouds, right? And they're just floating throughout the ether. And what happens, these massive gaseous clouds, according to the prevailing theory, is gravity began to kind of pull them together over a long period of time. And then we get closer and closer and closer and closer, more and more dense. And what would happen as they compressed down and finally collapsed, that that pressure ignited the nuclear fire of stars and we had stars. That's how, that's how it formed. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. I said, that doesn't happen though, it's impossible. He said, why? I said, have you, ever, have you ever compressed a gas? Have you ever noticed as you push gas together, what does it do? It heats up. When you heat up a gas, what does it do? It expands. So all you would have had if you use what we know about physics is you'd have these clouds going in, out, in, out for billions of years. That's all you'd have had. He's like, well, you know, I didn't study stars. I studied life. Okay, great. Let's talk about life. I said the flagellum bacteria. He's like, the what? The flagellum bacteria. It's a little bacteria with an outboard motor on it. It has 38 unique pieces. And those 38 unique pieces, every single one of them is needed for that little motor to work. So like this tail that whips around. I said, if you only have 37 of those pieces, it's actually a disadvantage to that bacteria to have 37 pieces because you're carrying around this weight that doesn't work. It'd be like you and me having to wear a backpack of 50 pounds our whole life. Would that make you better or worse able to escape from a lion coming to get you? Yeah, worse, right? Simple. I said, that's the 37 pieces. You need all 38 to make it work. I said, so how in the world do 38 individual pieces over a long course of time, how do they all magically appear and work as a motor? Because throughout all the 37 first pieces, it's a disadvantage and that bacteria is not survival of the fittest, it's survival of the worst. He's just like, I don't know, man. So I'm just, I'm ready, man. So I'm, I'm about to go to polypeptides. I'm ready, got it geared up. It's in the chamber, I'm This guy next to me, his name is Matt Roos, very different kind of believer than me. He's like, hey, do you know that Jesus loves you? I'm like, bro, do you wanna believe in Jesus? And this guy just looks at him and goes, yes, I do. I think in hindsight, he's like, I just wanna get away from him. This dude, I wanna get away from him. I'll do whatever you're telling me to do right now. I wanna listen to you. 
right? I'm like, hey, dude, I'm killing it here. Back off. I think sometimes we just make things way too complicated because we think we're supposed to save people. We're just supposed to obey. We're just supposed to share the good news. And then you trust God with the outcome. Man, evangelism's so easy then. It doesn't get this, oh, I better know about stars and polypeptides and flagellum back. It's just, I just need about Jesus. And I need to just share about Jesus and then trust God that he'll prick their heart and he'll save them. That's the way it's supposed to be. So Peter just brilliantly does it. Shares Jesus. People are convicted. 3,000 get saved. Now, this seems like a massive number. Did you know this though? Every single day, 365 days a year, 70,000 people come to faith. So we're seeing a massive miracle every day now throughout the world. It's brilliant. All right, so 3,000 get saved. Here's what they do, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. We did this on Sunday, a couple of weeks ago, just the incredible simplicity of the early church. Remember that, I did Picasso's drawings, how he stripped down the bowl to what, what, what the very, very, whatever, eight lines that are necessary to represent a bowl, okay? I think these four things minimally are what you need to say, this is church. Without all four of these, you're not church. Now you can add on detail, no doubt about it, but if you strip down church, it has these four every time throughout all of Christendom. And awe, verse 43, came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. I love this. Here's a group of people, 3,120, and they can't get enough of each other right? Day by day, they're meeting, verse 46. They're breaking bread in their homes together, having meals together, meeting together. Like they're just, they can't get enough of each other. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher in London, doctor turned preacher. He studied, he has a book called Revival. It's a brilliant book. And he says this, what he studied is he looked at every revival that he had notes on or information on. He said this, the one mark of every revival is this, people couldn't get enough of each other. The church became this community that they love to be together. That was, that's across the board, always happens. You see it right here. They couldn't get enough of each other. In modern American church, we're not that way anymore. It's, man, maybe I'll go to church once every other month, once a month. That's about as devoted as we get. I'll give you six times a year, maybe 12 times a year. And we wonder why the church is so weak, 
right? It, it, my analogy to people is this. Okay, so some guy's like, man, I can't believe I got sick. Last month I ate a salad, man. I can't believe it. Why am I sick? I ate a salad. I ate a carrot two weeks ago. Bro, <laughs> right? That's the idea though. It's like, man, church is to be this diet that we keep, we're just getting filled up on and empowers us and keeps us strong and engaged and all that. But if, you're, if it's once a month, bro, that ain't gonna protect you. It's like eating a salad once a month and expect not to get sick. These people were devoted to seeing each other and we need community. Like there's this thirst for it. Have you heard of the company We Work? Probably not. It's massive though. It's, just, it's, just, it's a working, it's worth billions of like $8 billion right now. It's just exploding. They just started this thing called We Live. And what they've done is they've bought these big buildings in like San Francisco, New York, Seattle, wherever. There are these massive buildings. They're renovating them with very small apartments and big old communal areas. So they say this, if you'll come here and the rent's like $3,500 a month, if you'll come here, you'll get a small apartment, but then you'll get this communal area where you can cook food with your neighbors, where you can do laundry with your neighbors, where you can shop, they have shopping inside that same place where you can just do life with people. In this. You rent this and you get friends, you get community. That's what they're saying. So they're, they're launching these right now. I've been watching, they're very interesting. And I think, will it work? Because we've tried this before right? The 1960s. We tried it in the 1960s. It was called communes. How'd the communes work? They failed. Why? Sin. Sin sunk the communes, right? So here we're just doing the same thing. Let's try this again. People want community. Hmm, let's do this, right? It fails. So I was in jury selection and we're in this room and there's like 30 of us in this room and this firefighter starts talking about race relations. I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe he brought that up. So it just starts in this conversation. And there was this young guy over there, I think he was Native American. He looks very Native American. And he's like, yeah, I get that. I get that we're supposed to be at peace with each other and love each other and like, you know, hang out with your neighbors and be in community. I get all that. He goes, but the problem is I drive home, I pull into my, my house, I look at my neighbors and I think, I don't trust these people. <laughs> I just started cracking up. I don't trust these people. So I go in my home. <laughs> I was like, that's such it, isn't it? Yeah, I know we're supposed to like, but I don't like that neighbor. I know we're supposed to love each, but I, that neighbor over there, he's the neighborhood watch program. We watch that neighbor. What's he doing? <laughs> Is he cooking meth again? Oh, it's so funny. So they think they're gonna do it again. We're gonna, we're gonna do it with these. Right, we'll see. If you've succeeded in we work, I don't know if you'll succeed with we live. But there's this yearning for it. It's so healthy. There's this article I just read on uh, this city called Frome. I think that's how you pronounce it. It may be Frome. It's in England. It's, it's F-R-O-M-E. Frome? I don't know. Anyways, you can Google it. And what they did in this city was they had this concerted effort to try to develop community in this city. They just dove in for two years. Everything in the world, like blue zone kind of project stuff, just we're gonna get people to know each other. We're gonna do everything we possibly can. Here's what I found fascinating. Compared to the other cities around them that they didn't do anything with, you know, the, the comparative stuff, they found this. There was a 46% reduction 
in emergency room visits in Frome compared to all the other cities around it. Like they, it just, they just dove down. People didn't go to the emergency room anymore. Why? They said, because they're connected to people. And being connected to people makes you healthier and makes you like, hey man, I have this backache. Oh, let me check that out, right? Oh, let me help you move that piano. Instead of, oh, that's it, go to the hospital. Right? There's this incredible thing about community. And it sparked something in me because we had the, the, uh, the guy that's running Asante come, Wynn Howard, talk to us as a staff. And in Grants Pass, if you look at demographics, our emergency room visits are off the chart. Like they're, they're almost the same as Medford. And Medford's a little bit bigger than us, have you noticed? And yet, we, why is that? Maybe it's this disjointed thing that's happened in Grants Pass where there's just kind of this, I don't trust that guy next to me. <laughs> He's cooking meth, whatever it is. And community has been broken down. And then the, 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 the repercussions of it are actually financial. That's what Frome found out. Like you can markedly say, we just saved $2 billion in healthcare costs because we invested in community. Like we can actually put a dollar amount to it. That's what this church has. They loved being with each other. I have another study. I have lots of studies. It's kind of what I did to that biologist. I'm gonna do it to you too, just <laughs> fire hose. It's, it was done in 1956. And in 1956, hospitals moved from open wards. Remember old pictures of hospitals? You just see these rows of beds. Everyone's in the same kind of big giant room together. Well, because of our understanding of infectious disease, like, hey, germs spread, they started putting people in individual rooms like hospitals are built today. And so in 1956, they started studying like what happened when you took people out of the big room and put them in their own room. It's really interesting. The pain dosage of a open ward hospital was 3.2 doses per patient. The pain dosage for people in an individual room hospital shot up to 13.4. And they thought, why, why is that? They believe because when you're alone, What's the one thing you can think about? Man, my knee hurts. Ah, man, my knee really hurts. Right, when someone else, you're just talking to them, you forget about your knee hurting. Like, hey, yeah, man. Dude, I got shot in the spleen. Wow, man, how bad did that hurt? That's gotta hurt worse than my knee, bro. You're in bad shape, right? <laughs> but when you're by yourself, you just think about yourself and your problems and your issues. And they also found that the recovery time was almost doubled when you're by yourself. How crazy is that? That's community. That's the way God designed us. These should not be shocking things because in Genesis 2, what does God say to Adam? Bro, it's not good for you to be alone. You need somebody with you. You need friends. You need to have kids. You need to form community because it's that healthy for you. So when I look at Acts 2, I'm about to speed up a lot here. When I look at Acts 2, this is what I think. They've got, this community got mission, right? They started selling and giving and taking care of one another. They just become this extended family right? Community, mission. Here's, what, here's the one word I think about when I read Acts chapter two. I think happy church. They're a happy church. They're just happy. And you'll hear every once in a while a preacher that will say, you know, don't be worried about, be, about being happy. God's not concerned with you being happy. I patently disagree with that. I think God wants happy kids. Never give up on being happy. I think God gave us that emotion because he wants us happy. Does that mean we'll always be happy? 
Probably not because it's broken and there's bad things that happen totally, but never give up on being happy. This is a happy community of people. And like I said on Sunday, the enemy, he uses that drive in us, the happiness, right? To then tempt us with surface thrills, but not real happiness, right? It's like this. This is how I explained it to one guy. I said, it's like eating junk food. You ever sat down and ate like an entire row of Oreo cookies? Right, you start one and you're like, man, those are good. And pretty soon the row's gone. And you're like, you know, since I ate a row, I might as well eat the whole box. Box is gone, then half gallon of ice cream, then a pound of bacon. And of course a Diet Coke, because you're watching your weight. I have a Diet Coke. How do you feel? For about two seconds, you feel good. And then you're in a 24 hour sugar coma, right? The reaper, you're like, oh, that was a bummer. I shouldn't do that again. That's what Satan does to you from every avenue. Look, Oreo cookie. Oh, yum. Ah, that stinks. And here's what Jesus is constantly doing. He's constantly saying, follow me because I'll take you to green pastures and still waters. And the journey might be a little bit difficult and we might go up and down, but if you trust me, the end result will be green pastures and still waters and deep happiness. So follow me. And that's what this church is doing. They follow Jesus. And it's a happy, brilliant church. And then we see a healing, chapter three. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour of prayer. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that's called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Such a juxtaposition there, right? Beautiful gate, broken dude. Like it's, it's really awesome. We did this on Sunday, so I won't spend any time on it. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him as John did and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple. He'd been there a long time. Everyone knows that's the broken dude at the beautiful gate asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him, right? So we did this on Sunday. You can podcast if you want. Man's healed, right? He goes from lame to dancing with the stars. It's brilliant. There's this flash mob that gathers around right? Jesus is going to get the glory. The man gets the joy and Peter and John get the gratitude. I think that's the way it should always be. Jesus gets the glory. Dude gets some joy. And Peter and John were like, hey, thanks. Now I struggled with that last one for a long time. When I would do something or I'd preach a message, people would be like, hey, thank you. That was good today. And early in my ministry, I'd be like, it was all God. Trying to be like humble, right? It was all God, you know? And then I really started thinking about that. Well, if it was really all God, then 
everything I say should be written down and there should be like a new Bible, the gospel of Matthew. But it's not all God. <laughs> There's a lot of Matt in my messages. So now I'm blaming God for the Matt part. Mm, I don't think that's the right thing to do. I think it's okay to say, hey, I worked hard at this. Yeah, God's given me some talents and some abilities and I've used them and applied myself. I've studied to show myself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Hey, I've done that. Hey, thanks. It's okay to say thanks. Because now when people say, hey, that's a great job. I just say, hey, thanks. I keep wanting to say, man, make sure Jesus gets the glory, no doubt. But if you guys are joyful, hey, awesome. Say thanks, no problem, right? I don't have this weird trip anymore. It was a weird trip I had for a while, probably just in my head. I don't think Peter and John have it. So it's awesome. And then we did that. We'll go really quick here, verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So it's a big, giant open area. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. And his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and I know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence <clears throat> of you all. Guys healed and it goes viral. Helicopters are pulling in. Camera people are there. Wolf Blitzer is asking for interviews. Oprah's saying, come on my show, right? It goes massive. And what does Peter immediately do? He preaches. He's like a crowd, I'm preaching. Give me a mic. I love Peter. This is the same guy weeks before who denied he even knew Jesus three times. Now, every time there's a crowd gathered, he preaches. What happened to him? Power of the Holy Spirit transformed the coward into courageous, right? His weak point becomes his strong point. He just becomes absolutely, undeniably, a guy who loves to preach about Jesus no matter what it's gonna cost him. And we'll see it starts costing him and it does not change his mind. It's awesome. The Christian life is a series of pop quizzes. Do you know that? Peter wasn't able to prepare this message. He's going up to pray, right? He wasn't like, hey, just in case I heal a guy, I'm gonna write out a message, a sermon. I'm gonna be ready for it. No, he goes up there. Something happens, guy gets healed. All of a sudden, hey, there's this opportunity. There's all these people standing around. Hey, I'm gonna preach then. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is a series of pop quizzes. Be ready. Always be ready because you just don't know. And if you're ready for something, guess what happens to you? 
you're fearless. You're fearless. So uh, for the first time in my life, I decided to put in a septic system, which I would not advise anyone to do, but I sometimes have to learn the hard, hard way. So I'd been told by a friend, he's like, dude, things gotta be totally flat and level. I'm like, really? Okay. So it was all dug up and I went in there for 12 hours in these ditches with a flat shovel. And I just made that thing flat, had a transit, beep, 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 just everything, perfectly flat, all 375 feet of it, just it was backbreaking, right? Then you put in these, I, these, I put in these infiltrated things and then I make sure each one of those were beep, 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 totally flat. And so I'm all done. I call for the inspection. And I'm like, I just, I, it's gonna be perfect. Can't wait for this. Guy comes running down, leaves his car on. <laughs> That's gonna tell you something right then. He's like, looks great. I'm like, are you kidding me? Where's your transit, man? Aren't you gonna test me? Aren't you gonna sh- see how good I've done? He's like, now nah, I can tell it's good. That's, What? Are you kidding me? He's like, no, this infiltrator can go up and down an inch, no problem. What? But I was ready. I had no fear, right? I almost wanted him, get your transit, man. I want you to test this thing. But I'm not that stupid, just in case, right? But when you're ready, what? You have this confidence. Ah, no problem. And that's what you're doing tonight, just being ready. Peter would say this later in his epistle, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies inside of you. And then guess what? You're fearless. He knew, hey, pop quiz, pop quiz, I'm ready. And it says this man clung to Peter and John. If you know the brain, here's what you know. If you don't walk as a child, the part of your brain that's given to walking, the brain just changes it and uses it for something else. Did you know that? Our brains are just incredible. So his brain, whatever part of the brain that would be normally given to, and do you know this? Balance is one of the hardest things the brain has to do because we're an inverted pendulum, right? Got most of our weight up above and then we get slimmer and slimmer down below. We're an inverted pendulum. Keeping the body upright takes a massive amount of horsepower. So people that begin to have some kind of brain disease, what's the first thing that begins to go with them? Balance, right? They say this, you can test yourself. You can test how healthy your brain is by your balance. Like try standing on one leg and closing your eyes. If you can balance, your brain is healthy. If you have struggle balancing, it may be you need to practice a little bit at it, or maybe, uh-oh, brain's going, right? Everyone's gonna try it after church today. <laughs> the police are gonna be like, what? Is, is, what are these guys all drunk? They're doing a Dewey test. What are they doing over there? (laughs) Right, so I think this guy's like, but he's, you know, maybe he wasn't leaping and dancing. Maybe it was just his brain going, what in the world's going on? So I was like, ah, I gotta hold on to somebody. So he's holding him just like, ah. And then Peter begins to breach. And this is what he says, pretty simple message. Number one, he says this, it's not us. This miracle that you see right here It's not us. Power is so seductive. There's nothing more seductive than power. So right out of the gates, no, no. I mean, it is seductive. When my kids were much littler, uh, they started calling me Matt, which I don't like. So I told them, you can't call me Matt. 
You have to call me daddy. And they're like, but you have all these nicknames for us. You know, Jaders, Joey, Bella, Bells. You have all these nicknames for us. We want a nickname for you. I'm like, you can't call me Matt. Well, what can we call you? I made this mistake. I said, well, you can call me boss man. <laughs> and I just thought they'd be like, I'm not calling you boss man. That's weird. That's power. That's, you're just, you're corrupted, dad. We'll call you daddy. Nope, it's stuck. So I'm in shopping and Isabella, my daughter, she's like three at the time. She like goes around the corner and I'm like staring at something, you know, trying to figure out. And then she gets lost. And I just hear, she had this voice that Carrie, she still does. Like she's got, just like me, except not the voices like this. She starts yelling, boss man, where are you? And people are like looking around, who's boss man? I'm like, I have no idea. I gotta go though. <laughs> Be careful of power, man. It just corrupts you. I think this is the biggest test for Peter and John. What are you gonna do? You got this crowd, loving it, gathered around. Oprah's there, Wolf Blitzer. Man, you can start the Peter and John power hour. What are you gonna do? The first thing they say is, not us. This was not us. Peter would later say in his epistle, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and in due season, he'll lift you up. Peter just knew, I'm not going that direction. It's not us. When great things happen, not us. And Jesus is good. He's been so good to us. Yeah, we've partnered well, totally, but Jesus did this and we're just enjoying the fruit of it. Not us. Number two, <laughs> I love this about Peter. He says this, you killed Jesus. That's point two. It's not us and you guys killed Jesus, right? In chapter five, it'll be their objection. Like when they finally like put Peter in jail and they let him out, they're like, listen, Peter, Dude, you keep trying to blame us for the death of this guy. Peter's like, totally, I am. You're trying to bring his blood on us. Yes, yes, I am, right. And I'm gonna keep doing it. Every time Peter preaches the gospel, he blames the people for killing Jesus. It's like his MO, I love it. You killed Jesus, right? He goes, you asked for a murderer, someone that takes life, instead of the author of life. What a bad trade. There've been really bad trades in history. This is the worst trade ever. You chose someone who takes life for the very author of life. Don't trade down. Ultimately, we're all gonna make trades in life. We're all gonna make decisions. Who do we choose? Choose Jesus. Choose the author of life. Right, he, in his presence of full, is fullness of joy. I don't care what else you put out there, nothing is gonna bring the fullness that Jesus brings. Everything else is a murderer. Everything else takes the life that Jesus wants to give to you and murders it. Everything else does. That's why Jesus says, seek first my kingdom. Seek that first and all this other stuff will be added to you. You kill Jesus, Right? The Bible over and over keeps saying, choose right. Deuteronomy 28, Moses, I set before you heaven and earth, blessings and cursings, life and death. Choose life. Joshua, 
in Joshua 24, 14. You got a choice here, people. Yahweh or idols. As for me and my house, we choose to serve Yahweh. Genesis 3, tree of life, tree of knowledge. Choose, choose well. Everything else is a murderer. Choose the author of life. Number three, he just begins to describe the character of Jesus and he uses these terms. Man, they're brilliant. Okay, I'll give you a few. He's called the servant. Why would he call Jesus the servant? Remember Isaiah? So he's talking to a Jewish audience. Isaiah has this fascinating thing he does from chapters 41 through 53. It's called the suffering servant songs. There's six of them. And as you read them, they progress. And it sounds like at first it's the nation of Israel. And then as it progresses, it becomes a person. Because here's what Jesus is. He's the faithful servant that does what Israel could never do. Fulfills the law, keeps the standard, does it perfectly, and is slaughtered for it. That's why he's called the servant. You, you, that when, when, Jesus, when he's called the servant, the Jewish might be like, ah, the, the songs of Isaiah. Okay, all right? Then holy, the holy one. Once again, this Old Testament, God's holiness. It's the Hebrew word kadosh. His, it's his otherness, right? When Moses sees the burning bush and he wants to come up to it, what does God say? Whoa, 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 whoa. Take off your shoes because the ground you're now on is my kadosh, my holiness, right? What's a shepherd's shoe gonna have all over it? Yeah, right? Dirt, blood, poop, right? Don't bring that into my presence is what God is saying. Um, I am holy, that doesn't belong here. Those things, they're really symbols of, of the curse and of death. That those things do not, I am the author of life. Don't bring those things into my presence. And that's really a theme in the Old Testament, right? We get that today, right? There are certain things we just don't do. Does anyone eat in their bathroom? No, why? We brush our teeth in there, right? We have this thing that stays in there all the time. We shove it in our mouth all the time, right? All over the place, put it back up there, but we will not eat in the same place. It's really ridiculous, but there's something that's like, they don't belong together. What I do in here doesn't belong with eating. No, right? Like Myron, my son, a couple of weeks ago, he, uh, um, I was thirsty. He's like, I'll get you something. And he goes in the bathroom and gets water for me. And I remember I just, I looked at that cup. I'm like, I can't do it. I'm gonna hurt his feelings, but I just can't do it. A couple of reasons. I wasn't sure if he got it from the sink or the toilet. Just, I can't reach, I'll just dump it in here. Right? I was a little bit like, mm. but the other, even if he did get it, it's from the bathroom. I can't drink it. Right? There's just this weird, we know there's like, yeah, the things, there are certain things that don't belong together. That's God's condition in the Old Testament. Yeah, no, Isaiah 6, I, I don't belong here, as Isaiah says. I don't belong here. You're saying holy, 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 and I am not that. I don't belong in here. That's the entire Old Testament. There's this thing around God, look out. Okay? But watch what Peter does. He says, the holy one, the righteous one, um, righteous, tzedakah, we've talked about that. If you know that word, it is throughout the Old Testament. The, the rightness, right? I won't go there, okay? And then right after that he says, okay, and you killed the author of life. 
the joining of these two ideas, the holiness of Jesus and the author of the source, he is the source of life of Jesus, is a radical, radical difference because it's done something. The Old Testament was like, stay back, look out, holy, safe zone around here, careful. But Jesus comes and he brings both holiness and life. And I think you see it best in Matthew chapter eight, where Jesus, right at the Sermon on the Mount, goes and there's a leper and the leper wants to be healed. And Jesus could have spoke the word and healed them, but what does Jesus do there? He touches him. Now, what were you not supposed to do to a leper? Touch him, why? Because disease spreads, right? So um, something that's clean and holy gets contaminated by something that's dirty, right? Right, if you took a very clean hospital room and you brought dog poop in there, does the dog poop get clean or does the hospital room get dirty? It gets dirty, right? We, that's just, that's Old Testament, right? You get contaminated, germs contaminate. Dirt always makes things dirty. Clean doesn't make things clean. It always flows that way, right? The Old Testament, death is contagious. Leprosy is contagious. Disease is contagious. So you don't touch it, you stay away from it. But then Jesus comes out there of life. And he reverses that. He says, from now on, life is contagious. And if you touch me, life will flow to you. It's brilliant. He is the source. He is the author of life, right? So Jesus comes and brings us brilliant new thing. Like I'm the source of life. If you touch me, I'll transform you. I'm not angry at you. Even though you're a leper, even though you're dirty, even though you've got poop on your sandals, it's okay. Because I will cleanse you. I will change you. My life will flow into you because I am the source of life. It's an amazing, amazing thing that happens here, right? So, so it's almost like this. When you think about the big picture, man, I thought it'd be a lot faster than this. In Genesis 3, Genesis 2, they're told, hey, eat of this tree and you're going to die. They eat of the tree, do they die? Mm. Takes a long time, right? They eventually do die. Here's how I think about it now. It's like this. If you have an iPhone and you unplug it, does the iPhone die? No, it has a battery life, right? It's going to die because it's now unplugged from the source of life, if you would. And some people are really good at preserving their battery, right? They're CrossFit, Pilates, Kale. Man, that battery goes a long time. Other people, not so good with their battery. Oreo cookies, uh, bacon, which may be good or not. We'll find out. Lucerne ice cream, right? So their battery goes fast. So what sin does is it unplugs us from the source of life. And then Jesus comes to say, you can plug back in. I will touch you and you'll be connected to life. If you come to me, you come to life, literally, because I am the source of it. That's what Peter is saying right here. It's brilliant, brilliant theology. So this guy gets healed, why? Because he just got plugged into the author of life. It's a sneak preview of the kingdom that's coming for us where we'll all be finally completely and entirely plugged into life. And all that's death, all that's contagious, all that's leprosy, all that's evil, all that kills is banished. And all there is is life. It's a sneak preview of that coming kingdom. It's amazing, all right? So then he applies it. I will go like never before. And now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers 
But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Here's what he says. Number one, you're ignorant. You have failed to put together what the Old Testament has been teaching, right? You failed to connect the dots. So remember, I don't know when it was, a decade ago, there were those pictures with all the dots that if you stared at them long enough, another picture appeared, remember those? And even if you didn't see it, you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I see it totally, let's go. Like, they're like embarrassing. Like I could never see them. I'm like, ah, right? Peter's saying like that, like you have failed to put all the dots together to see it. So here's what I'm gonna do for you. Number two, I'll connect the dots. So verse 18, verse 26, this is the servant of Isaiah, right? Deuteronomy 18, this is the one Moses was speaking about, right? The restorer of the kingdom, Isaiah, Ezekiel, the one that's actually gonna restore all things, return them to the Eden-like existence that we want. Remember what I said? There's a messianic package that comes with Jesus from the Old Testament. Doesn't matter then, okay? There's an idea that Jesus brings with a big thing. Peter's saying he's gonna bring it. It was inaugurated. It will be completed at some point, right? That's coming, restored kingdom. And he is the Genesis 12. The big, to me, the overlaying promise of the entire Bible is that there's coming the seed that will be a blessing to all the families of earth. It is Jesus, right? So he's saying, I'm connecting the dots for you. Here's what I love about Peter, and I'm done. When Peter preaches, it's Bible. When Peter preaches, it's Bible. We've looked at two of his messages. It's just scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. It's Jesus. That's what he does. He is absolutely saturated in the Bible. I think if you stab Peter in the heart, out would come the scroll of Isaiah. What is that? I was just talking about it. Right? That's the way he is. Now, why is he that way? Because Jesus was that way. He saw it modeled. No matter what Jesus was in, it was an amazing thing. Jesus would, he, he's tempted by the enemy. What does he do? Does he say, man, you know, I just, I'm not feeling it right now. This is a bummer. Three times he says, it is written, right? He's asking these questions. Well, you know, what's this, what's this? Hey, have you heard it said of old? Right? Mark chapter 12, he is being attacked by the Pharisees and he says this, listen, you don't know scriptures and you don't know the power of God. He starts quoting scripture at him. On the cross, he's nailed. What does he do? Quote Psalm 22, a messianic psalm. Right? I can go on and on and on and on. I won't. But, but there's this thing. No matter what Jesus does, he 
he as the full human, full God, he stands on scripture. So there's this great little text in Hebrews 12, five, it says this. Um, it, it's, just, it, it's this almost glancing remark, but it's like this. Don't you know how scripture exhorts you as sons? And then it quotes the Old Testament. That word exhort literally means argue. Don't you know how scripture argues with you? Does scripture ever argue with you? It should. Because here's what happens in humans. We have these, these competing things that argue with us. We have a world system that says, do this and you'll be happy. And it's all salt water. You drink it, you just need more. I thought the iPhone 3 was awesome. Anyone still think the iPhone 3 is awesome? No, man, iPhone X, bro. Right? No matter what the world offers, it's salt water. It just makes you thirstier. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have an iPhone. Just know that won't do it. It's salt water. Right? So that the world's competing with you. You have an enemy who's constantly trying to throw stuff in at you. We saw that with Ananias and Sapphira. Hey, hey, that's a really good thing to give to the church. Do it this way. Let me just twist it, corrupt it a little bit. The enemy's always doing that. His voice is always there. We have our own mixed upness, right? Just depending on who you've just listened to, your opinion can change, right? I'll be driving sometimes like a long distance and I love talk radio. So I'll get like a conservative viewpoint on something. I'll be like, yeah, you're totally right. And then like NPR will be come on. No, you're totally right, right? Just depending on who I listen to. In the last 15 minutes, my mind can change that easy. So I've got these competing thoughts in my own mind. The key for the Christian is this. You have to let scripture argue with you. You have to say, wait, what does scripture say? That's what Jesus does. Wait, not how I feel. Not what the world system is trying to press upon me. Not what the enemy is throwing his darts at me. What does scripture say? What does scripture say? Do you allow scripture to argue with you? You should. Right? We sing a song. And it's, it's a psalmist writing. And it says, bless my soul. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. He's arguing with himself. Soul, right now you don't wanna bless the Lord. Right now you wanna do something else. Right now you're contrary to God. Listen, soul, I'm arguing with you. From scripture, you bless the Lord. That's what a Christian does. Because you're so saturated in scripture. And that's why Peter is so powerful. And then he says this, repent and be refreshed. Do you know that there's great refreshment in repentance? You ever hold on to a sin and Psalm 32 says this, when, when David held on his son, he said, sin, he said this, it dried up my bones. It just made me miserable. I'm holding on to, and then finally I confessed. And I was like, oh, I'm forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sins is forgiven. That's how he starts that Psalm. The refreshment from repentance. When you get how good Jesus is, you repent. Because you're not losing something through repentance. You're gaining something. You're being transformed into his image. If you're holding on to sin, repent and be refreshed. So Father, I thank you for this example you gave us in Peter. So much like so many of us, so powerfully used by you. I pray, Lord, for us as a community, I pray that you would continue to move us to an Acts 2 kind of community I pray for us as we walk out this week and this month and this year. I pray that we be those that are ready to share you. That we stop making it so complicated. 
and stick with you, sharing your son, sharing your goodness, sharing our testimony, sharing what we've seen. And I pray that we'd be a people that have lives that are established, exhorted, argued from scripture. That we be those that if you poked us, out would come a verse. So help us, guide us, fill us with your spirit, Lord. We thank you that the same promise that was made to them has been made to us, that we can be empowered by your Holy Spirit. So fill, use, send. We ask this in your son's name, amen. God bless you guys.